Welcome to the Young Success Podcast, a podcast where we talk about vocation, ministry, and faith life here in Portland, Oregon. I'm David Libby. And I am Josh Hawk. And today we're here with Joel Kibler, uh, a guy I know, Josh, you're you're very good friends with. Yeah. Um, so I got acquainted with Joel a couple years ago now. Um, and, you know, Joel has been a bit of a spiritual director for me. Um, and then just a, a man that I've come to deeply respect and, and admire and has imparted wisdom um, into not only my life, but in, in countless others. And so, Joel, thank you for thank you for being here and joining with us. And, Glad to be here with you. Um, yeah. So, Joel, uh, tell us tell us a bit about yourself. You're with the people of praise. Yes, I belong to a charismatic uh, covenant community called People of Praise. Uh, we have 1,800 members. We're all over North America, Canada, United States, the Caribbean. Uh, what characterizes us is we are a, a group of people who have decided we wanted to follow the Lord in such a way that we pledge our whole lives to each other. Uh, we're all members of a, about 15 different denominations and churches. Uh, but in addition to that, we wanted something more. So we formed a community together and we have a covenant with each other, which is a lifetime commitment. And we're largely uh, families and singles and then people like me who live a celibate life after discernment. And uh, the main thing we do is uh, be a community, uh, but we also are very involved in education and in work with the poor. Mm. Wow. And our origins are in the Pentecostal charismatic movement, both in going back to Azusa Street in the 1900s through the Protestant uh, charismatic movement and then into the Catholics uh, after 1967. Mm-hmm. One of the, Joel, in, in some of our conversations, you know, one of the things that that strikes me that we'll spend some some time today talking about, but that of the American dream and the, and, and the pursuit of I don't know, health, wealth, and, and happiness and how we, how we go about doing that and um, you know, something that you have devoted your life to is that of discernment. Um, and you know, I have just my time spent with you. Um, you've definitely, you've been able to, to identify things in my life, you know, that, um, might be difficult for, for me to see, or just kind of my, I'm blinded by, you know, like Mm -hmm. be, be able to kind of point out blind spots and, um, and something I've, I've observed just in our culture is that we, we have, I think, a lot of blind spots around, mm. around this pursuit of, of the American dream. Around you know this, this pursuit of wealth or happiness, and and um, and so I was wondering if you might, you know, be willing to speak to that a little bit, um, and and some of your observations and experiences around that. Yeah, uh, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is a. Uh, quote from a woman named Mother Teresa of Calcutta. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so she became famous some years ago. She spent her time in, uh, it's now called Kolkata, picking up poor people on the street, uh, dying people and taking them in and caring for them until she died. And there are a lot of poor in Kolkata. And a journalist from France asked her once, do you really think uh, you can be successful at this around the world? And her response was, God did not call me to be successful, but to be faithful. So I I think there she touches on a key theme in American life, which is the American dream, like you said, Mm -hmm. Josh. Um, The American dream comes out of the immigrants to the United States in the 1600s, 1700s, into the 1800s. There were waves of immigration. And, you know, the folks that came to the U.S. were poor, and they were in the lower class. Yeah. So they came from you know, France, Germany, England, uh, Spain, where you had two classes, the, the rich class, the aristocratic class, and then you had everybody else. And <clears throat> everybody else were farmers, and there were tenants. Um, they never had much of their own. The status always went to the house of people in the House of Lords and the people in the aristocracy. So they came to the United States with the dream that they too could have a plot of land and a house and some independence and be able to carve out a life without being controlled by this class system. So going back to the very origins of the United States, we gathered together, or they're gathered together, people who wanted that kind of independence Mm. and that freedom. 
And I think that turned into a, that turned into a dream. We could be happy with independence and freedom. But but the question is always uh, independence for what? Other just than to be independent or freedom just to be free? Hmm. Uh, is our goal to shift a little bit here just to be successful, to have wealth of some sort, to have privilege, to have status? And so the American dream in the United States uh, flows out of that very deep background of uh, independence, uh, progress, um, uh, having some degree of wealth, all of which will bring us happiness. And I think we, we're, we, we live and breathe the air of that dream. And as disciples of Christ, we have to ask ourselves, is that the Lord? Is that the kingdom of God? Is that finally what it's all about? Hmm. So I think I would start there. One, one of the things, to, so to go back to that quote, Mother Teresa said, you know, <clears throat> like, God has not called me to be successful, but faithful. My first thought is like, oh, well, does God call some people to be successful and not faithful? So is that a personal calling or is that is that actually like how we were created? Is that, you know, it's kind of a, a bent that we operate, we function best as human beings when we are, when we strive for faithfulness um, and obedience rather than when we strive for, or we pursue success. Yeah, I, I think you have to pursue obedience as, as a Christian. I don't know what the rest of the world should do, <clears throat> but I, I think we should pursue obedience. So let me tell you a, a personal experience. It was a very defining moment about 25 years ago. I was flying from, I think I was out here in Portland for a visit, and I was flying back to uh, South Bend, Indiana. And uh, the plane was late, and so I finally got on the plane. Most of the people were on it. And as I was right there at, as you enter the plane, and the flight attendants were there with their serving drinks to those in first class, um, I looked down that whole aisle, and I think I had a word from the Lord for me, which was, uh, this is my world. I made it. It belongs to me. You are my people. What that did for me was set my worldview more firmly in place, is I need to discern in God's world what he wants of me to do. So success isn't necessarily something I should do, although I have, I have a friend who's one of, the, uh, one of the top award winners for IBM two years ago, and got a, he and his wife got a five-day trip to the southern coast of France. I have another close friend who was special assistant to the chairman of the board of Mobile Oil Corporation for all of its... Uh, um, environmental activities around the world. And they're very successful, made good money, uh, made a wonderful contribution, I think, to society. Sure. But they did this out of discernment. It was an ongoing discernment. Is this where God wants me to be? Is this what God wants me to do? Hmm. So it wasn't just for themselves or for their own personal dream. It, it was always connected with the kingdom of God and what God is doing hmm. in his world to help us fill it and subdue it and then through Christ. I always have, I always think about that. Um, I mean, maybe we need to define American dream a little bit, but, but that, that idea of, of dream and of chasing success, I always wrestle with that. And, and especially on a, personal level because I look at um, Jesus calling his disciples to take up your cross and follow meaning you know the 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 life of following Jesus is a, a life basically taking up your cross and and walking to die pretty unsuccessful um, and then also his call to the rich young ruler saying give away all you have and and come mm -hmm. follow and I, I think about those things and I think neither of those is a very good dream you know if we're talking about American dream or anything it's they like as far as dreams go those suck those are bad those are bad dreams yeah. Th those are those are bad situations and living into the kingdom of God often I don't think as much of a a 
dream or much of a desire like inherently it almost has to be like a like a a, a choice and one that you keep after and keep pushing into because it it sort of it, it goes against the impulses that we yeah. we have yeah i so something that talking about that couple Joel you know like often we we assume that living into the kingdom of God following Christ means exactly that selling everything we have and and living as mother teresa did you know like living amongst the the poor and and i i think of Henry now and we talked about that in one of the the first episodes uh, but he had a call he's like I, I think he probably felt a, maybe a little bit of that like oh I need to you know to, to really follow Jesus I need to go live amongst the poor and he he did that he left his his life in academia and went to South America and lasted about a year or two oh, yeah, that's right. and he realized <laughs> He goes, I, I actually realize I enjoy hot showers <laughs> and it's the simple things, you know, or, or I, I enjoy being alone and in, in reading, you know, and, in in his housing situation in, in South America, it was just small homes full of people. And, um, and so we often equate like, oh, to be really spiritual, or if I were to really follow Christ, then I've got to live amongst the poor or I've got to be poor. Um, but that's not always the case you know and god calls us to to different things um but i i think the key is is control and and is um and and this is i think where the breakdown of the american dream is because we're pursuing something we we want rather than living into or pushing into obedience it's a matter of discipleship so um, the disciple follows Jesus wherever he goes. Mm. Um, so you keep your eyes on Jesus. And, and my experience, I'm 69 years old, and uh, I've traveled about a million and a half miles. I've been to 39 countries. I've lived in France, lived in Italy, lived in Belgium. Uh, gotten to know a lot of different people, very fine people. Um, I knew the king and queen of Belgium. I've known several cardinals in the Catholic Church. So I've seen disciples of the Lord uh, live a whole wide variety mm. of, of, you life. could call it, uh, styles of life. Um, and I think they were all trying to discern what God wanted. So you can turn a selling everything and just working for the poor into an idol. Yeah. Uh, if you're not careful. Yeah. You, you turn that into, oh, actually, I don't mean so much, an, it could be an idol, but the law. Yeah. So yeah. We, we hammer ourselves with this new law. It's a harder thing, isn't it? Yeah. To... Um, Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and have your heart uh, 24-7 open to him for whatever he wants rather than just settle on something and now say, I follow the Lord. No, it's, it's not like that. It's, it's 24-7, a heart open to Jesus. Mm. Hmm. A word that comes to mind, thinking of the, the American dream, you know, and looking at those early settlers, I think there's a, an issue of contentment um, or discontentment. So we, we grow discontent in our, our current state and definitely looking back, you know, the, the class system, when you're at the bottom of a class system, I mean, you, there's, you, you, there's oppression happening and you just, you want anything. You're, you're discontent with, with how you are. And there's some scriptures that are kind of interesting that we could probably in another, some other conversation, but about when Paul talks about to slaves and how like as a slave, you need to be content, you know, or you need to obey your, your master. And so I think there's a deeper level of contentment that, that we're called to. And I say that not in any way as a means or justification of oppressing people. Um, but when, when we are the ones being oppressed, um, if we were to flip the, the scale, flip the, um, flip the situation that's not actually going to give us that contentment i think that we are are longing for the change in circumstance doesn't bring about true joy true happiness um yeah there it's a change of heart yeah it always uh, christianity always comes down to the heart what's in your heart again 24-7, open to the Lord. Like Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me, 
or some translations say, remain in me. I prefer remain because abide sounds like rest, easy now, everything's taken care of, you're in me. Um, that's too passive. I, I think remain in me uh, connotes uh, action, <clears throat> determination, because there are so many ways that uh, we can stop remaining in Jesus. I mean, the scriptures talk about the world. John in his gospel talks a lot about the world. Uh, Paul talks a lot about the flesh. And throughout the scriptures, there's a lot about the devil. Mm. So there's all these three things at work, the world, the flesh, the devil, that keep us from remaining in Christ. So we have to work hard to remain in him. And as we do so, that's where we find contentment. And so we can be like St. Paul in Second Corinthians, says, I've been through everything. Um, and uh, I'm content with whatever happens to me. Yeah. Right. Right. So how do you, um, how would you see, um, I'm going I'm to speak in broad strokes here, um, Christians often today missing that mark, uh, failing to, remain in Christ or or um, living more into this American dream way of thinking like um, what issues do you see there happening today uh, it, it depends on gener- what generation you're part of um, so there was a really I'll talk about millennials okay. um, I'm a little distant from this I just gave my age I am one so <laughs> <Okay>. go ahead <laughs> um, the largest survey ever done on youth uh, took place about nine years ago by a professor at University of Notre Dame called Christian Smith. So he's a sociologist. And he interviewed uh, over nine-year period. Uh, he began with 11 to 18-year-olds, and then a few more years later, he went back and followed up with the same group, and now they're like 14 to 21, and then followed them up until uh, the oldest hit about 26. And, uh, and these were... Um, uh, there was large as like 5,000 youth, and he did 300 uh, two-hour interviews. So I mean, in, in the sociology world, that's a lot of data. So he wanted to find out, is there anything that we can point to uh, that would help us understand how to maintain faith as a Christian as you grow older? <clears throat> the first thing he found out was that the religious beliefs of American youth and now millennials can be summed up in three words, moralistic, therapeutic, deism. So he's, a, he's the author mm-hmm. of that. So moralistic right. in that um, it all comes down to being a nice guy, a nice gal. Uh, therapeutic is all about feeling good about yourself. Uh, and deistic in that there's a God out there somewhere mm-hmm. and occasionally in a crisis you can turn to him. This is not, he said, orthodox Christianity. Uh, folks, we have a problem. Um, and what he discovered was that um, the people who were able to hold on to what he calls orthodox faith, the faith of the creeds and so forth, were people, uh, he singled out, it's very helpful to have Christian friends. It's very helpful to have Christian parents. Uh, and he pointed out particularly fathers. And it's very helpful to have some kind of religious experience. Uh, through prayer, through a Bible camp or whatever. But those three things, and there were some others as well, but an experience of God, parents, or at least some older adult who you look to who's a strong Christian, um, uh, and to have friends. And then, but that doesn't guarantee it. So um, by the time you get through college and out of college, there's still a a lot of uh, uh, fall away. Uh, even with those things, that's that's how difficult it is today. So, I don't know if that answers your question enough. Um, uh, there's a lot more that could be said. These are, as you can tell, these are huge topics. Yeah. It's, it's a huge topic. Um, no, I've heard a, I've I've heard a lot of talk. Um, a writer named Sky Jatani's done a lot of talk on um, this. Uh, moralistic therapeutic deism um, that that uh, people nowadays are tending to follow and um, 
it's it's really interesting. He's also he also points to the fact that the the tactics that churches make to try and um, to try and attract people are like just going way the wrong way. Um, he he said that the things that people who are actually seeking after God and we're talking like teenagers, twenties, thirties, forties, like people who the churches tend to be wanting to attract. Um, what what they're really after are things like prayer and community and worship, and yet um, churches' answers are, well, let's have a better band and let's have, oh. uh, like, let's put a nice playground in the children's area, and it's <clears throat> it's it's patches, it's things to cater to people's desires mm-hmm. which is is the opposite of what they need that's um that's just giving people um desires when really what they need is um a, a life in community and in relationship with Jesus so um yeah i just i just find that fascinating how um some of the some of the problems and how the churches are uh, or how a lot of churches are um not going the right direction <laughs> you know, people uh, people do the best they can yeah, um right. but uh it's programs don't save people um i think people are saved one by one hmm. they're saved by being in a relationship hmm. with someone who radiates the lord that would be the best but at least someone who can talk about the lord um and you win that person over uh and then you help that person to pray and you put them in relationship with other christians so they can talk about their faith together i think that's the way forward but it's very slow it goes back to americans like to be successful americans are known around the world for a high-powered economy and for new businesses and American businessmen are wonderful in the drive and creativity they have. Um, but this all, it's program-oriented, and Christianity is relational. So you can win some people by programs, and, and because they're attractive moments. You, I mean, you go into an auditorium, and you have a speaker, and you have a band, and you have 600 people. I was converted by going to a prayer meeting at the University of Michigan, uh, when I was a sophomore in uh, college, <clears throat> ending my sophomore year, walked into the basement. There were 400 people. It was a prayer meeting. People were singing songs, not the traditional ones I grew up with, which are played with organ music, nothing against organ music, <laughs> except it was slow. Um, and that witness was terrific. I, I said, wow, there are a whole lot of people who believe this stuff. Mm. And that was an important moment for me. Uh, there are a whole lot of people who believe this stuff. and then, But I had to make a personal step. I had to commit my life to Jesus in front of some people. I let people lay hands on me and pray with me for the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. And then I turned a corner. Uh, and then I made a mistake. About a month later, I thought I was doing pretty well. And uh, so I just kind of went back on my own. And um, mm-hmm. I didn't disciple myself to somebody or at least get some a mentor who would say hey Joel you need to learn how to pray and you need to read the scriptures and here's the place that you start and uh, you need fellowship with other Christians and by the way you have an awful lot to learn <laughs> so <laughs> I had an, an interesting experience last week that I'll share and we'll see where where it goes but talking about contentment again I walked into an Apple store and I I love Apple computers and phones and technology and and there I Apple as a company has done brilliant at when you walk into the Apple store you want everything in there like I just as a consumer like 
wow, this is beautiful. This is gorgeous. And I walked in there. I was in the mall with my daughter. And and first thing, they had the phones <clears throat> right there. I'm like, oh, wow, look at that phone. That's That's a really nice phone. I really want that phone. And then I caught myself saying, I have that phone. <laughs> that exact phone. I, I oh. have that in my pocket. Like, I have that one that I really want. And then I walked back to the, the computers and the laptops and like, oh, that that's really nice. I, I want that. And then I realized, wait, I not only do I have that one, but I have one that's better than that one. And, and it, it struck me odd that the very thing that I wanted was the very thing I already had. And, and I, I don't know, I, I think about that in our pursuit, um, our pursuit of, of success. And like we, we pursue after something and that will, uh, that will make us feel better. That will somehow give us, you know, accolades or, you know, make us, yeah, give us true joy and happiness. Um, when if we were really honest with ourselves, if we were to step back and to look at what we already have, we're like, well, I already have everything for true joy, for, for true happiness and, and for, for true peace. Um, but there, there seems to be, at least with me, like there's this, this hardwire, I have this bent towards, towards pursuing, towards a, a achievement, um, towards doing something that I don't yet have. Um, have you ever heard of the 1936 Harvard University study on adult development? I bet you haven't. I don't think so. Uh, I just uh, heard the fourth director of it uh, gave a TED Talk. I uh, probably gave it a couple of years ago. I'm a little late on doing TED Talks. Um, but they studied, uh, Harvard University decided to figure out what makes people happy. And if we could say content, like yeah. that's the word you've been using. And they figured that the only way you can figure this out is look at people over a lifetime. So they studied people from 1936 until the present. Uh, 725 people, now 60 are left alive, they're in their 90s. And they took two groups. They took Harvard sophomores, and so, I mean, so this is elites. Uh, and then they took people from one of the poorer parts of Boston. So they got the you could say the top and the bottom of the socioeconomic scale. And they followed them and interviewed them every two years. They drew blood, gave them brain scans uh, over that time and to find out what makes people happy. And their conclusion was uh, when they got to people in their 80s and they looked back on their life, what makes people happy is not achievement, it's not wealth, it's not recognition or status, it's relationships, mm. and but not just any kind of relationships. Uh, like a friend of mine sat next to a teenage boy on an airplane, uh, and the guy was on his cell phone and on Facebook, and um, he said, "How many friends?" My friend said, "How many friends do you have?" And the guy said, 4,000. <laughs> so um, it's not it's not quantity. So the Harvard study says it's not quantity. It's, it is relationships. It's not quantity. It's quality, and. And they also added that people who have quality relationships over those years are physically healthier and their brains work better longer. Uh, so it's a fascinating study. You can find it online. Just do uh, 1936 Harvard study on adult development and you'll find it. Interesting. I think we've traded a lot of like this idea of happiness or contentment with um you know, anything that gets us a nice dopamine hit or whatever, <laughs> you know, like, like yeah. we have 4,000 friends on Facebook that that feels temporarily nice. It's um, a nice dopamine it, hit. <laughs> it, it, it's a good dopamine hit. We, you know, you get that new uh, iPhone that you already have. That's a, it's a, <laughs> right. it's a nice hit or, or <clears throat> promotion, et cetera, et cetera. Those yeah, they feel those good. Those feel good in the moment. So I I think we may have conflated those things with quote unquote happiness. And there, you know, nothing wrong uh, with a hit of dopamine, but that's it's just short lived. It's well, I don't 
even know if it's happiness. I it's hmm. it it feels good. Uh but like I I don't know. I I've thought a lot about this and I, I think I'm gonna write something because I don't like I, I process when I write better, but on paper, I think this year has probably been the best year of my life in terms of achievement. Hmm. And I've also felt the worst. Oh. And I think there might be, like, hmm. I, I don't know if those things go together. I'm just saying I don't think the achievements brought the long-term joy that maybe they... <clears throat> they necessarily I thought should have and I I don't know what that's about but um, maybe it just is that um, the the things we pursue or tend to pursue aren't all they're cracked up to be yeah so <laughs> yeah I agree uh, the the Harvard study um, was interesting also uh, I, I don't have it fresh in my mind right now, but the the uh, the, the guy who gave the talk uh, made the observation that if you have good relationships in those periods when you're suffering, mm. Uh, mm. you really still find joy. So they mm. found in their study people who um, were alone, isolated, their pain, whether it's yeah. arthritis or some chronic disease or maybe some terminal disease, was much more difficult to sustain and, uh, and, and live through. But if you had a couple close relationships, where the, uh, whether it's your spouse or good friends, people really committed to you, really have your well-being at heart, you could still find joy in that pain. Mm-hmm. And, and then I would add to the Harvard study, if you know the Lord, yeah. And you have, you know, the peace that passes understanding. Yeah. Uh, that's all the more powerful. So so the, the American dream that we began with uh, is a wonderful thing. Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, great. The, the, the U.S. Constitution, Declaration of Independence, has been amazingly helpful. The world's been transformed in the last 50 years since World War II with democracy rising all over. Uh, because people do want a good life and they want freedom and they want happiness. Um, uh, but in the end, those can't be defined in terms of uh, how many uh, Apple, I- the latest Apple iPhone, yeah. like you said. Yeah. I, I think it's defined in terms of a relationship with God and good relationships with human beings. Something that when I was reading a definition of the American dream that, that stuck me um, the fact that it's for all people like i think in its in its truest form the american dream is that the 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 wealth and the and the success for everyone and so it it has at its core this elimination of the class system um where i'm i'm going to work i'm going to kind of pursue i'm going to 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 build a business so that i can hire you know 100 employees to to work and then to be able to better their lives too and and that's gotten lost you know for for many people i think in our pursuit of that we we fail to we we fail in that and we're like no this is about about me it's it's those dopamine hits again you know like oh this is gonna make me feel better um rather than you know this this more communal sense of of working together you know we're very individualistic and i think it definitely hurts us in in the long run um, I, I have a definition of individualism. I, um, this is from, uh, I brought it with me because I thought it might come up. Oh, I thought you were pulling it out of your pocket. I thought you just kind of have this on hand anytime you're walking. No. Someone's going to ask me about individualism. I'd better, <laughs> sorry. Anyway. Well, because you're talking about the American dream, I yeah. thought this had come up. So uh, uh, one of the great commentaries on the American dream is this uh, Frenchman named Alexis de Tocqueville. So he wrote a book called Democracy in America. He came to the U.S. and observed it and went back and wrote about Americans. Uh, and he, so he wrote this. Uh, and he said, he said, you know, Americans, they're, they're very successful. Um, they have a good thing going. They're full of energy and optimism, but they're individualists. Uh-huh. And he says, individualism is a calm and considered feeling 
which disposes each citizen to isolate himself from the mass of his fellows. Such folk owe no man anything and hardly expect anything from anybody. They form the habit of thinking of themselves in isolation and imagine that their whole destiny is in their hands. Each man is forever thrown back on himself alone, and there is danger that he may be shut up in the solitude of his own heart. Wow. So this, Americans are known for individualism, and, and that's a pretty good definition of it. We're not known uh, for uh, staying, uh, building a culture uh, where people are deeply committed to each other. Hmm. I was just talking to a, a college student uh, who's home on break, this was uh, yesterday, and I said, tell me what, what college students are like these days, because he's frustrated. And he said, well, they just, uh, they want to have a lot of experiences. Uh, they want to go here and go there and rack up their experiences. They graduate and they don't have a real clear purpose. They just know that they want to try different things out. Um, and that, I was that way when I was younger. Um, and that's okay for a little while. But God designed us to live in unity with each other. I mean, the Trinity hmm. is perfect unity. Yeah. And we're, the human race is modeled after the Trinity. And there's a deep wisdom there, which is you'll only find happiness in long-term committed relationships. Uh, everything else is uh, glitter, as, as Tolkien says, Gandalf says in that uh, Lord of the Rings. All that glitters is not gold. So the, the gold is mm. relationships. Mm. But the trouble is, it's hard to make relationships work. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, and you have, uh, I imagine, as, as part of an intentional community, you, uh, you have some, you would have some pretty strong things to say and, and some direct experience on how uh, intentional community needs to be intentional at times because yeah. it's not easy all the time. <laughs> no. <laughs> I, here's two things that occur to me. Uh, stop gossiping and mm. slandering people and mm. talking people behind their back. You'd be, it's amazing yeah. how often people speak badly of others. They do it in office, around the coffee pot. They do it uh, you know, on the phone, whispering to each other. They do it in their, um, in their neighborhoods, talking about a neighborhood. Kills unity kills peace, and so forth. And the other thing is, we have to learn how to forgive. Um, when I was growing up, uh, you know, somebody did something bad and kind of sort of apologized, and my response was, well, you know, that's the way it goes. Forgive and forget. Trouble is, it's not the way it should go, and you don't really forget, uh, forgive and forget. So... Um, I think what I've learned over the years is when you wrong somebody, go right up to them, be very clear, be very, very simple, and say, you know what, I screwed up, I, uh, I offended you, I said something I should not have said, and you look them in the eye and say, will you forgive me? Just those four words, will you forgive me, uh, open up a path to reconciliation that no other set of words can do. And then, of course, there's the response back, which is three words, I forgive you. And you may have to struggle with it. So I, you know, I'd say in relationships, solve those two things of bad speech and uh, lack of forgiveness, and you're a long ways home to unity. There's a third one I'd throw in too, which is learn to, um, what does St. Paul says, uh, talks about uh, pleasing Christ and uh, forget the text um, and pleasing one another. Just seek to please one another mm -hmm. and please Christ. Wow. That's good. That's good. That's good. And that, um, man, I think that fits into what you were saying about individualism too because we, we don't, we don't often forgive well. <clears throat> and obviously when we say forgive and forget, we don't forgive or forget. Um, 
we tend to like I I think part of it is just we want to shake it off and be okay ourselves just fix the problem in our own minds and leave it alone yeah yeah. um it's our I I mean it feels in a lot of situations like it's individualism us wanting to um just fix the problem and decide to be okay um you know I I I say jerky things to Josh all the time he laughs it off I don't know if he's okay with it or not (laughs) (laughs) but 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 he could be like secretly just trying to be okay with it instead of um yeah, there, there's something though of like admitting our admitting our failure, admitting our wrong. It it indicates it. Um, oh, it lets the other know. It, and there's a bit of humility, I guess, in, in there. Like it, if if I were to go up to David and say, David, I, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? It's that's then saying, and I I have to admit to myself even that I've. I failed and that I, I'm, I, I need, it's, yeah, it's, it's admitting failure essentially. And I had a conversation with a parent yesterday and something that me as a dad that I've tried to instill, um, in my parenting style and with my kids and it's something that my dad did to me, but I will admit to my kids those times like, and I'll have to come to, to my four-year-old and now five-year-old say, sweetheart. I was sorry. Will you forgive me for how I behave towards you? Um, and that, that can be really hard as a parent. Like, no, I don't need to ask my five-year-old, will you forgive me? You know, like I'm the dad, you know, like you, you listen to me. And I've talked to adults who said, yeah, my parents did some things that, that I, and they never asked me to forgive them for. Um, and that, cause that's admitting, admitting unsuccess, like it, admitting that, that we've failed. And there's a surrender there that I, I, I think is so, it's so necessary for contentment or for true peace and joy. Um, you know, I've, I've prayed with a lot of people in my life and, uh, for various things. I mean, people ask for prayer. It's always good to pray with your people who do that. Um, but probably some of the most powerful prayers have been to pray with someone and go through their history hmm. and ask them and ask the Lord to bring to mind moments in the past where they were hurt. And, and then when they recall that moment, to, to say to them, okay, this is a moment you can forgive the person who hurt you. Or you can decide to at least ask the Lord's forgiveness now for what you did. Mm-hmm. And if that person's still around and available, um, go find them and ask for forgiveness. And so let's say I'm, I'm praying with a 45-year-old man um, and he's trying to live a good Christian life. Or, uh, it's, I always do this with Christians. Um, and you go back, well, what about the first five years of your life? And then what about grade school? What about high school? And then if you went to college or at least into your, about your mid-20s and then after you were married for the first five to seven years and then for the next decade after that. And, and you take your time. And this can take an hour or more. And, and it's helpful to have somebody else praying. And it's a real spiritual work because the person's trying to be open to the Lord calling things to mind. And then you are uh, open to the Lord showing you something. So one day I was praying with, uh, this guy was a younger guy, he was about 22, and uh, had, was a little troubled. And as I was praying, I had a picture of him in an attic, way in the far corner of the attic, bent over crying. And I said, does, Tom, does that ring a bell? And he started to cry. He said, oh, I remember exactly what happened that day. And uh, so he told me, and, and uh, uh, his uh, it's not fresh in my mind now, but somebody had said something very nasty to him, mm. and it just broke him inside. And mm. from that point on, a part of him was broken. So I said, Tom, this is a good moment. The Lord is present. Um, forgive the person who said that. And, and he did. It was a, there was a real grace for that. And it set him free. Mm. So, so, so this forgiveness um, is a powerful 
powerful mechanism for freedom. And, mm-hmm. and, and there's a grace with it. I mean, God is always present. To, I mean, God's in the business of setting us free and, and delights in setting us free. Hmm. That's good. Relationships can, can be hard. And this is interesting, David, you know, like we've talked about relationships being key before, you know, like it, it seems like it always comes down to relationships or comes back to that. But I don't think we've explored that just that that's, that's difficult. Um, like we, we have the answer and it's here right in front of us, you know, and you know, many of us who, who are married or who live with people, like it's, it's right next to us, you know, like there, there's built in relationships there. Um, but it's difficult and it's, it's hard, you know, and it definitely, they, they come at, at a cost. Um, but there's, there's something beautiful about that. And, you know, Joel, for, with the, the covenant community that you're a part of, there's two individuals, um, who, who stand out to me just with my interactions. Um, but Jerome Devlamic, who's Linda Joe's husband and Charlie Frega, um, who's actually the, the leader of the, um, the local chapter of the people of praise group, the two of them, their families and they're, they have adult children and grandchildren. Um, but they were in each other's weddings, um, and they actually kind of were across the country for a, a while from each other, um, but then have kind of come back in recent years or have found themselves kind of together into living in community with one another. That was, those are two people, two individuals mm-hmm. that stand out to me as like, wow, you've, you've li- literally lived a lifetime, you know, with, with each other and, you know, seasons of life have taken you different places and yet you still have that, that relationship. And there's, there's a joy, there's a peace, there's a contentment there that, you know, that I sense just from being around them. And and it's, um, it's encouraging. It's infectious to me. Like I, I I love those relationships and if it, 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 maybe it's a dopamine hit, you know, for (laughs) me when I'm around those, you know, and, and see that. And so it's possible. And, um, and so there's a definitely a call for us to, I don't know, lay down our selfishness, I guess, and to pursue others. Yeah, um, laying down selfishness, and and also, um, and I I probably shouldn't even say this because we don't have time to get into it. But there's there's not only a, a difficulty there. There's there's uh, fear. Yeah, there distri- often yeah. like. I mean, like like you said, uh, Joel, people have been hurt, and I talk with so many people, um, like, from uh, uh, the point of view of a pastor, they wouldn't, like, there are people who wouldn't approach me as a person, but they'll have coffee with me because I'm a pastor and talk yeah. about how they they don't want to get close to anyone. They don't. They don't want to come to church because people in church hurt them. They don't yeah. want to get close to um, other other people because they've been burned in past <clears throat> relationships. They like and so yeah. there's um, there's not only difficulty there. There's there's fear. There's guardedness and um, like it's it's easy for us to say relationship is the answer. And I I do agree with and affirm that but um it's it's a lot of work for people who've been you know uh, who've been through hell in life um trying to help them um find relationship with anyone once again i I don't always think individualism is uh, chosen so much as forced upon some people because of their hurt so there's there's so much difficulty there that's a a big topic i told you i i i I like to throw a bomb out there and then say okay we're done yeah nice Um, nice bomb but it's but yeah i i just i i can't get over that when we talk about the um uh the necessaryness of of relationship that's not a word um but the the necessity of relationship it's it's hard for some people and uh, you know all i would say to that is 
we don't hear give you. Up. We hear you, and we understand that. And it's um, it's yeah. a it's a long process, but it's worth it. I don't, do we have time for one story? Yeah, please. I uh, talked to a professional woman once who was deeply, deeply hurt in her childhood, uh, and it, it it made her just close up inside. On the one hand, she was enormously successful, a brilliant woman, but she was deeply hurt inside. And so she came, said, what do I do about this hurt? Mm. And this is deeper than normal. Um, so I prayed about it, and I think the Lord showed me something, which was, uh, I have to add a detail. She was not able to talk to God as Father, and she was not able really to talk to Jesus as a brother. So where we ended up was, um, I asked her to meditate on Jesus in the crib. He, there's nothing intimidating about a baby in a crib. <laughs> and there's, uh, the, the baby hasn't done anybody any harm. And she did that for about, it took her a year just to be able to talk to Jesus mm. in the crib. And then eventually she discovered that that baby Jesus, the light of the world, um, the king of kings, was approachable. And gradually after that step by step, she was able to talk to the older Jesus. Uh, I, we ceased uh, um, meeting frequently, so I never know. I didn't know how she ended up talking to God as Father if she ever got there. But it t- these things take time. Hmm. And I read a. I was reading um, yesterday a spiritual work, and it quoted uh, one of the uh, early theologians of the fourth century, Gregory of Nyssa, and Gregory says. Love means allowing people to take time. Hmm. Hmm. And, and you do, you have to, it just takes time. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, that's a good word. Uh, relationships are slow. They, um, and, and a life with Jesus is slow. And yeah, often, it's a lifetime. Often difficult, but man, it's so worth it. Well, thank you so much, Joel, for being here. You're yeah, welcome. For sharing with us. <coughs> this has been great. Um, and uh, for the Unsuccess Podcast, I'm David. And I'm Josh. And we'll see you next time.